In this episode of Smart Humans, we talk with Matt Rodak, who's the founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. He talks to us about what it's like to be investing into the real estate market and what are the latest trends that are happening. He gives us his predictions for 2023, as well as educating us about how to evaluate investment opportunities in the space. And lastly, he gives us his predictions for what's a real estate market that everyone should be keeping their eyes on for the coming years. Welcome to Smart Humans with Slava Rubin, presented by Vincent. In this alt-investing podcast, Slava talks to amazing minds about their investment journey and finds out what it takes to make it in the markets. And now, here's your host and smart human, Slava Rubin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Smart Humans. I'm super excited for today's guest. Um, love to be able to talk to an industry expert, and today we're talking to Matt Rodak from Fund That Flip. Matt, thank you very much for joining. Thanks so much for having me, Slava. Great to be here. Absolutely. So we always like to start with the same first question, which is how did you even as an individual, you know, at what age and how'd you even get into alts? Tell us that background. Yeah. So I, I like to think I was one of maybe the uh, early adopters of alternative investing. I somehow got turned on to, um, I think it was just a newsletter at the time called Lend Academy run by a guy named Peter Renton, who I think is a uh, uh, one of the OGs, if you will, of alt investing, but he was um, closely following, uh, I think, two of the companies that were on the cutting edge of this, uh, um, Lending Club and Prosper, all the way back in 2011, 2012, when they were kind of coming out of the great financial crisis and looking for different ways to put you know, credit uh, together for consumers. So uh, for those that may not be aware, there was these, they called them peer-to-peer lending platforms all the way back uh, in the early days and, uh, um, somehow got turned on to, to Peter's kind of thing and was following it. And, um, it was back in the days where you could, you know, look at these consumer loans and see what the, the person was using the money for, whether it was, you know, putting a pool in their backyard or paying for a, a kid's wedding or consolidating, you know, credit cards and, uh, start to invest as I think as little as, you know, 50 bucks in these consumer loans. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of get an, a credit card interest rate return, at least on the face value. And obviously, these things tended to be binary where you'd either get all your money back in interest or like none of your money back uh, and no interest. So, you know, started to see kind of a blended return of, you know, the nines to, to 12%. But that was kind of my uh, my entry point. I was probably in my early to mid 20s and just something that I was interested in, in doing. And that was pretty cool from a technology and, uh, you know, how, how credit was being created and formed in this new mechanism. Um, and uh, in some ways was, uh, was uh, one of the uh, inspirations for how fun that flip got started, which I think we'll get into a little bit later. But yeah, I started, started having kind of a small portfolio of these um, consumer loans and, and really, was really just kind of uh, intrigued by one, it was something new and two, it was a, a way to deploy capital um, in, a, in a space that was uncorrelated to the stock market, which had just seen a tremendous amount of vol- volatility kind of through that 2006 or uh, yeah, 2006 to 2008, 2009 period. So as I was seeing my small 401k at the time, take a, a wild roller coaster ride, I started to think, man, what's a what's maybe some some other ways to uh, decorrelate some of my portfolio into into things that are um, less sensitive to, you know, call it the whims of the market, if you will. So over uh, time from 2011, when you started reading that newsletter and got into some private credit to today, obviously, you're an expert in real estate with your platform. Can you tell us about any of your personal evolution in terms of allocation across the various asset classes? For example, you know, do you put your personal money all into real estate now because you're an expert or do you put some into private credit? Are you putting into collectibles or art or are you pro or anti uh, crypto or 
you know, where do you go in terms of uh, now pre-IPO investing? Are you an early stage, late stage, avoid it? Just give us the whole thought on how you like to think about it. Yeah, so I, certainly I think kind of my uh, core thesis is to definitely stay focused on things that I, I understand well. So real estate, you know, checks that box. I live and breathe it. So I do have a fair amount of, um, you know, my, my personal investments in both, you know, investments that we make available to investors on our platform. So I like to say, you know, eat, eat my own dog food, if you will. So I have a fair amount of my uh, both retirement accounts as well as personal, uh, you know, liquidity, if you will, deployed into uh, investments on our platform. Uh, I also do, you know, some private syndications with real estate, you know, more multifamily and kind of more equity type deals with some folks that I've gotten to know over the years. Um, so real estate makes up a big part of my portfolio. Um, I've also started to get, uh, uh, I think early stage startups is another thing that I feel comfortable in having started a business and kind of know what to look for, both in terms of, um, you know, business thesis as well as kind of founding team. So um, got involved with a uh, angel list, came out with a new product a couple years back called a rolling fund. So uh, involved in a rolling fund um, focused on prop tech. So uh, still kind of tangential to, you know, what I, what I know well. Um, and then I do some one-off investing, angel investing, uh, again, with, uh, you know, some of those companies that I learn about through the rolling fund and, and some other accelerator programs that I've got some connections into. Um, and then, uh, recently, uh, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit later too, but recently made an investment in a manufacturing business of all things. So, um, starting to take a, a macro view on, I think what's going to happen with kind of the reshaping of, of global trade. And, uh, I think see some opportunities, particularly for some reshoring, uh, back in the U S around manufacturing. So, um, had the opportunity to take, a a, a, a position in a, a machine shop in, in Ohio with, um, actually an old high school buddy that I think has some, some interesting opportunities as, um, I think some, some significant investment in manufacturing starts to happen in a, in a pretty meaningful way back in the United States. So, um, crypto, you know, I, I dabble in crypto, I think more just so I have a reason to keep my eye on it. And, um, you know, I wouldn't say it makes up a big part of my portfolio, but, uh, I think the other kind of, you know, thesis that I like to follow for me personally is I, I like, uh, I like assets that either produce cash flow or the underlying businesses have a path to produce cash flow. So um, I get a little, I guess, less excited in um, things that are are more um, appreciation driven uh, from a valuation perspective. Um, so I, I've not done a lot in art and some of the um, you know other things that I, I think um, for a lot of different reasons are still compelling for a lot of uh, a lot of good re- got good reasons, but. Um, just not something that I've uh, necessarily developed a, a strong enough thesis around to, to model out from a return perspective. So you're a great person to help educate us in the audience. So um, when you say you stay away more from the speculative assets, but you really like the cash flowing assets, can you give us a little bit of color on why that is um, and why you make that decision? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think some of it has to do with, uh, I have a finance degree, right? So, it, you know, it's easier to kind of model out, you know, at least uh, someone told me this earlier on, which I believe the only thing we know about financial models is that they're wrong, but at least has, you know, you know, something that you can start with on what could this thing potentially be worth, you know, if certain uh, projections or assumptions, you know, prove to be true over time. So, um, you know, a piece of art, I guess, is a good example. If it doesn't, it, it doesn't produce any uh, real value to uh, the economy at large in terms of, you know, increasing efficiencies or production or goods and services. Um, and its value is largely derived by um, what someone else is willing to pay for it. The converse of that, obviously, is that it's a, it's a very scarce resource. There's only one of it uh, in existence, uh, at least one original, you know, pieces of that. So 
uh, the valuation of that becomes harder to kind of, I think, model out in terms of how many people are going to want that one thing at some point in the future. Um, which I think is just as a finance guy, difficult for me to, 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 to make a bet on, um, based on, you know, a lot of different things that, that are going on. I think where it gets interesting is, you know, the things that are kind of in the, on the margins, uh, like I think wine is a good example of that where, uh, you could argue it doesn't, you know, produce any real cash flow or, uh, you know, value from efficiencies or production value. But, um, you know, there's a, there's maybe a case to be made that there's always going to be people that want to drink said wine. And it also has some of those uh, scarcity elements like art does, right? Which is um, something that I'm starting to kind of get a little bit more interested in also just from a, you know, personal interest perspective of learning something more about something that is somewhat interesting. So uh, I think like a lot of things, there's, you know, investments are somewhere on a spectrum where like our investments are very cash flow focused on our platform. And there's, you know, less beta in, in, in what that return profile is likely going to look like. Uh, and then on the other, other end of the spectrum, there's, could even argue maybe the startup world or the art world where uh, incredibly high beta, um, both in terms of return profile. And I've just found, you know, a little bit more comfort in understanding what my risk return profile is on things that tend to, to have a little bit more of a cash flow profile. Super interesting. And then uh, you mentioned the manufacturing investment. That's pretty unique for sure. How is that structured? Is that a cash flowing almost like a, a creative real estate play? Or does that look more like a venture startup play? Can you give some color as to what an investment like that could look like? Or even the one you actually did, what that was structured like? Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, it's maybe a combination of both. It's a profitable business when, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, it was purchased. You know, I think uh, I think it could be uh, just a, a a nice cash flowing business. You know, kind of in its current form. I think um, what got me excited about it is the growth potential. Um, you know, for for that business, so it looks almost a little bit of like a traditional real estate. You know, you can put a a, a cash flow model against it, kind of in its current current form with some you know reasonable year over year growth. Um, but you know, for example, you know, it's in Ohio, in Columbus, Ohio area. Honda's made some big announcements around investments in, um, you know, electric car and battery manufacturing. Uh, IBM recently announced, uh, or uh, Intel, I'm sorry, uh, recently announced, I think, a $20 billion commitment to that area for uh, chip manufacturing. So, yeah, so like, you know, this kind of speaks to kind of the macro view on, you know, reshoring some of this, you know, higher tech manufacturing that I think is going to continue to trend for uh, a decade or more into the future. And um, this particular business is, I like to say, it, it makes you know, picks and shovels for the manufacturing company. So to the extent there's growth in, um, you know, the bigger picture of manufacturing, to the extent, you know, this operator can, uh, you know, find a, a, an angle into, you know, um, uh, servicing these other types of businesses in terms of tooling, um, could, be a, could be a huge growth opportunity as well, right? Great. So is the idea that the manufacturing plan is excise the capacity and are they not fully, you know, utilized? So you could try to get more out of it, or is it to try to create, you know, more expensive uh, products so to make more money out of each cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a. Uh, I should caveat: this is a very, very small family-run, family-operated business that was, you know, was bought out, right? So I think it's, you know, its current existence was, you know, um, almost think of it as a lifestyle business for that, you know, particularly fam- family operator. And I think, uh, you know, still to be determined on the overall strategy, but the, the strategy is just let's find some new customers, right? And, you know, uh, get some good year over year growth, which compounds, you know, in the face of uh, um, what I think are a lot of tailwinds for, you may not have to work that hard to get new customers because these new customers are going to be looking for these types of services that are already local to the area, right? In, in a just-in-time environment. So, yeah, I think it's less about truly, you know, optimizing what's there is, is more so of just like, can we do more of what we're doing in, in a new, new opportunity set, which is evolving 
you know, quite rapidly in this particular part of the country, right? And given, thank you for sharing about the manufacturing investment. That's interesting, just as a new, you know, concept to discuss on the show. Um, how are, given your real estate knowledge, your pers- we're going to ask your perspective on the market here in a second. At a, like a hundred percent level, how are you allocating your hundred percent across your kind of investments personally? Are you like, you know, ninety nine percent real estate and one percent other, or is it some other percentage? Yeah, my, my financial advisors don't like this question. I'm probably overweighted to real estate. Uh, I'm probably like 65-ish kind of real estate, probably another 10 or 15% what I consider to be venture. Um, and then um, I work in a I work in a high risk, you know, business as it is. So I, I keep probably a fair amount of cash just as a, you know, um, a rainy day fund for, you know, uh, the, the family and, and call it, you know, sleep at night money. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's primarily... I've got, you know, some, some publicly traded equities and things like that and some IRA and, and retirement accounts uh, and health savings accounts and things like that. But I'm mostly in the private markets. Interesting. With a, you know, with, with um, most of my investable capital, if you will. And is that purposely avoiding the public markets because you feel like you do better with it in the private markets? Or is it because you feel like the public markets were just like overinflated and due for a correction? has more to do with just the, the time and attention that I have to actually study and understand what I'm investing in. So um, I'm in real estate all day, every day and understand kind of the ups and downs of whether it's cap rates or interest rates or, um, you know, what opportunities look like from a, a buy side perspective. So I don't, I don't have to do any additional work on, you know, is this stock trading at the right, you know, price to earning ratio? What does their balance sheet look like? How, how levered up are they? Right. What's you know, how reliable is the dividend, you know, whatever you're going to look at from a public equity perspective to put a valuation on, on a stock or a, or a fund. Um, and frankly, I'm just less interested in those things as well. So, um, to me, it just, you know, it's, it's, it's easier for me to, I think, make smart risk adjusted decisions in, um, you know, parts of the, the investment ecosystem, if you will, that I just already have a baseline, um, arguably maybe competitive advantage or, you know, additional knowledge to, to make, you know, good investment decision. So it's not a knock in any way on the public markets. It's just, I don't have enough time um, to really dig in there to the level that I'd want to, to feel good about, you know, investments that I'm, that I'm making. And even some of this, you know, interestingly, even, you know, another answer my financial advisors don't like is most of my public equities are like real estate related public equities, like REITs and different things like that. Cause like, you know, there's, there's certain REITs today trading at, you know, 80, 85% of book value, um, which I think is tremendous value just knowing what I know about, um, you know, what's likely going to happen to those underlying assets, right? They're going to be fine in my view, right? I mean, there's definitely something to say to stick to what you know, and clearly, you know, real estate and all the derivatives of it. So I'm sure that's working for you. The next question is quite open-ended. So take it where you want, but given all your knowledge about real estate, how do you feel about the current market? Where do you see the opportunities? And you could take that question however you'd like. What are the pros? What are the cons? What are you bullish about, bearish about? You know, how do you navigate, you know, let's call it this market for this year? Yeah, and maybe I'll speak about kind of the, the sectors that I invest in. So I think from a real estate perspective, I, I continue to be incredibly bullish on what I'll, I'll call residential real estate. So I think if you look at some of the fundamentals of housing supply, right, we're um, incredibly undersupplied from a, a number of places for people to live, both in the, the to, to for sale, right, to own space, as well as for, you know, from a rental perspective. Um, and what's driving a lot of that is um, there's a lot of talk, obviously, about the millennial generation, good or bad. And the reality is, is just if you look at the, the numbers of it, it's the largest uh, generation that is, um, 
you know, entering peak earnings, um, starting families, having big life events around, um, you know, uh, triggers that typically create uh, household formation. So, um, you know, from a demand side of the equation, I, I think there's going to be a lot of tailwinds for uh, single family housing, as well as to some extent, maybe, you know, um, I'll call it smaller multifamily, right? You know, two to four unit type type properties where people want to both own and live and uh, potentially uh, rent out some of the home that they live in. So, um, and I think, you know, behind that is the second largest generation, uh, you know, coming behind them that are going to, I think, have a lot of the similar traits around getting married later in life and starting families later in life and paying down college debt later in life to all be uh, able to be in a position to own homes. Um, so the demand story, I think, from a fundamentals perspective for residential real estate uh, is strong and will continue to be strong uh, for uh, quite, a, quite a bit of time. The supply side is also interesting, too, because we've underbuilt, um, depending on kind of who you follow, anywhere from two and a half to five million homes over the past, call it, decade um, coming out of you know, the, the great financial crisis. So uh, it was very hard to, uh, to get financing and, and really uh, for the builders and, and others to, to develop enough conviction in the market to build homes. Uh, and that was compounded with, uh, you know, additional uh, uh, shortages of land to build on in a lot of markets where the, you know, the people have the jobs and want to live uh, in an increasingly challenging regulatory environment around uh, permitting and, and getting the types of density to add the amount of housing that we really need to support, you know, our growing population. So um, all of that is to say that uh, it's unlikely that um, even where we're at today, and I think we're starting to see this play out, um, you know, the market to get too out of whack from a, uh, a home price appreciation perspective to the downside. I think we saw it get really out of whack to the upside. Um, and, and arguably what the Fed has done over the past, you know, seven to eight to nine months is, is going to prove to be healthy, I think, for the housing market overall. Um, but we're under a million active listings right now, right, uh, and, and, you know, from a for sale housing perspective. And that number should probably be closer to 2.2 to 2.5 million, uh, which just speaks to I think uh, to some extent, some of the challenges that, that we have from a, an overall supply side of single family housing perspective. So um, long way of saying, uh, I think there's a lot of there's going to be a lot of opportunities, particularly if your money's long enough um, in single family housing um, to, 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 to generate some really positive returns, either through fix and flip loans like we do or owning single family rentals or owning REITs that own, own single family rentals or. Uh, home builders um, or, you know, doing private investing to people that are building or renovating houses. So a lot of different ways to play the space. But I think the um, uh, if you've got the stomach for maybe some of the ups and downs that are going to be natural of any kind of cyclical business, uh, long-term fundamentals of housing, I think, are, are very good. I can't speak to some of the other asset classes, classes in, in commercial real estate. I think office and, um, um, you know, some, some of those uh, hospitality and retail, I think, have, have some challenges just given the way that people are, are living and working. And, and I think we'll probably take some time to sort out. But, um, you know, I think if you're in the, the residential space, there are, there are certainly some opportunities, um, you know, for, I think, a, a pretty a pretty long tail going forward. Um, on the venture side, I, I think... Um, sorry, 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 really quick. You mentioned less than 1 million active listings, but then you said 2.2 would feel like, let's call it an appropriate number. Is that 2.2 based on historic trends? Is that what historically is the right kind of listings number? Yeah, I think, um, yes, h- historical trends is a function of households, right? So, um, and part of this is being caused by, frankly, we just don't have enough housing supply. The other challenge is, uh, and, and there's a there's been a thesis around uh, what's called a mortgage late rate lockdown, where, um, so if you owned a home over the last two years, you've probably refinanced into a 
3%, sub 3%, 3.5%, 4% interest rate. Um, and now that mortgage rates are, you know, a tick over 6% today and we're as high as call it seven and a quarter kind of in Q4 of last year. Um, even if you want to move houses cause you need the extra bedroom or, uh, you know, you're ready to move up into your dream home versus your starter home. Uh, it's a really difficult trade to trade out of your 3% mortgage into a six or 7%. Um, so 70% of people that buy a house are also listing a house. Right. So most people that are are buying a home are also moving out of a home. And if uh, those people aren't moving out of their home to buy a new home, all of those listings don't happen. Right. So um, part of it, I think, is this you know premise around a, a mortgage rate lockdown where people just don't want to trade a three percent rate for a seven percent rate or, you know, six percent rate. Um, I think the other part of it is just the volatility that we saw in the mortgage, envi- mortgage environment over the past nine months is like, there's just not enough certainty. I don't even know what I can afford, right? Because I don't know if my mortgage rate is going to be 7% or 6% or 8%, right? So uh, we're starting to see that settle off here a little bit as we're getting, you know, um, I think some better trend lines around inflation and um, what the market thinks the Fed's going to do as a result of inflation. Um, so I think we're okay from a, you know, a housing perspective, if we land somewhere in the mid to high fives, low sixes, as long as it stays there, right, long enough for people to have some confidence to go list their house and to go look and to understand, you know, what kind of price point they can afford based on that mortgage rate. So what's your prediction? What's your predictions on that in terms of where mortgage rates are headed, where Fed rates are headed for 23? Yeah, so I'll plug I'll plug a podcast that I listen to every day, which I think is another question that you have. Um, There's a really good podcast called Housing Wire Daily. Um, and, uh, they have an analyst called, uh, Logan, uh, Motoshami, who also, who also puts out a weekly, um, uh, really nice post on kind of all things housing and, uh, mortgage rates. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing his work and hopefully you won't mind this, but I, I think, I think we land probably somewhere, um, you know, in the mid to high fives, um, you know, from a 30 year rate perspective, um, towards the middle of this year. Um, you know, I think there's there's two things at play there. There's obviously the the Fed funds rate. There's also what's called mortgage rate spreads. So the more volatility in the market, um, the the wider the spread is between the 10-year Treasury and a 30-year mortgage. So they're the the 10-year and the 30-year mortgage are trading uh, probably 70 or 80 percent wide uh, basis points wider than they normally do. So even if we don't see the Fed kind of come off their terminal rate of four and a half to five. Uh, we could still see, you know, another 60 or 70 percent or 60 or 70 basis points in spread compression on the 30 year mortgage, which would put us kind of in that, you know, mid to high five range, uh, which I think um, could happen, particularly if uh, the market starts to realize what I believe is true, which is there's a good story around housing from a supply and demand fundamentals. Um, so your uh, your credit risk or your valuation risk of the underlying house that you're ultimately putting that mortgage on uh, isn't isn't exposed to potential, right, negative or significant negative HPA, right, home price appreciation. So that um, uh, 70, 80 basis points, um, it's able to compress because less volatility. Is that, was that what would happen? Less volatility and just, um, it, it's, it's uh, the financial markets work just like any other market, right? There's supply and demand. So as uh, more uh, supply of capital is looking for, right, a fair risk adjusted return, globally, the 30-year mortgage and the 10-year treasury have always been, right, a, an asset that um, generates a lot of uh, capital supply into. Um, there's been so, so much dislocation, you know, over the past seven or eight or nine months that that, that capital has either gone into just cash, right, and we're just going to hang out in cash because we don't know what's going to happen, 
or it's been chasing other opportunities like, uh, you know, other assets that um, may be mispriced because of the volatility. Um, and, and whoever's allocating that capital believes there's a uh, uh, unique opportunity in the market, right, to get a, an arbitrage on a risk adjusted return because that market that market's not pricing eff- efficiently. So I think a lot of that stuff starting to work its way out of the market. And uh, we're going to see some of these more traditional um, tried and true, if you will, investment products uh, come back you know, into a, a revert to their mean effectively, right, on what their spreads are over uh, a risk-free premium, which is the 30-year mortgage primarily tracks to a 10-year treasury, right? So um, I think we're going to see that, as we always have, right, kind of trend back to, you know, trading over whatever basis points it typically trades over the 10-year. Got it. So maybe less of the crazy money during the zero interest rate environment into Tesla and more going into this, and this is how it'll all evolve. What was the name of that podcast again? It was Housing Wired something? Housing Wire Daily is the name of the podcast, and they um they do they do a really nice job on that podcast. Logan's on there once or twice a week. Um, they also have some other uh you know people that are in prop tech and kind of you know trends of of real estate. So um that's a good one. The listeners and I are always looking for more information. So let's transition. Um, thank you for sharing your predictions. Let's transition to fund that flip. So you obviously have a lot of knowledge because you started a company and are CEO in this real estate uh, world. Uh, can you tell us about you know what it is and how investors can get involved for, with fund that flip. Yeah. So we, um, we have a, uh, I guess you could, could describe it as a two-sided marketplace business. So part of our business, we are a big part of our business is we're out in markets looking for experienced real estate investors that are focused on, uh, the single family fix and flip new construction space. Right. So these guys are, uh, and gals are people that are, are buying properties typically in some type of distressed or value add, uh, situation. Um, they're going into the property and they're making, you know, renovations or uh, we do new, a fair amount of new construction financing as well, building new homes. Um, and they need capital to both acquire, you know, the, the home or the land as well as capital to make the improvements um, or additions or uh, build a new home, you know, on that particular, you know, plot of land. So part of our business is finding the people that are doing that, uh, verifying them, underwriting them, uh, looking at the, the asset that, that we're going to ultimately make a loan on, and then issuing a first position mortgage, very similar to what you would get as a consumer if you went to a bank or a credit union um, with title insurance and uh, you know, all the, the, the fixings to make sure that you've got a, a properly perfected first position mortgage. So a big part of our business and operations is focused on uh, finding these types of operators that are, you know, full-time in the business of creating housing supply uh, and obviously making money in the process. Um, and then what we've done, uh, which kind of goes back to the, the lending club and, and prosper analogy that I uh, used earlier is we've created a, an online platform where individual investors, so long as you're an accredited investor, uh, can participate in investing in these, uh, in these loans that we originate um, through our origination business. So um, you can go to fundthatflip.com. You can see all the different loans that we funded. You can review uh, the appraisal, the statement of work, the photos, the write-up, the credit score of the person that you know we've made the loan to, uh, and invest as little as five thousand dollars into that individual project, um, and earn you know a percentage of of the interest. So these are debt investments. Uh, earn a percentage of the interest you know over the life of that loan. So they're typically nine to twelve month loans. Uh, again, they're secured by a first position mortgage. Uh, right now they're paying interest rates in the nine to I think 13% range. Um, you know, so, you know, like I said before, it's something that I like cause it's, uh, for my portfolio, cause it's, uh, it's asset backed to short duration. It's high yield, uh, which I think is, you know, uh, three interesting things that you, 
usually don't get together. You're usually trading one of those things away. Um, so this is a, uh, I think an asset class that, that offers, you know, both the short duration, the asset backed and the, uh, the high yield, which is, um, for us made it, made it a, a pretty easy product to, uh, get people excited about over the years. And can you give us some perspective on your size or scale, maybe some metrics or any numbers you could share? Yeah, so we did, uh, we did a little over a billion dollars worth of originations, uh, in 2022. Amazing. Yeah, and in uh, the history of the company now, I think we're around two and a half billion. So we've been around, uh, I think, going on seven years at this point. So, um, yeah, we've we've seen about everything there is to see in in kind of this space. Um, and what's like the average origination, approximately? Yeah, the average size alone is I think right around four hundred k. You know, not all of that is dispersed kind of at the point of origination, right? It's released as different milestones are, are hit on the project, which is another thing that we, you know, service that we provide to our passive investors is, right, oversight and servicing and uh, risk management throughout the life of the project. Um, but yeah, they, they range as little as, you know, seventy or $80,000 loans for, you know, maybe a, a smaller home in, in the Midwest somewhere. We also do some larger development deals where, you know, the guy may be building, you know, 14, uh, townhomes right on a infill lot in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, that may be a five or $6 million loan. Um, but each of the individual units, you know, has an outsell of, you know, call it four or five, $600,000, uh, depending on kind of, we like to stay in the median part of the market, right? So we don't like to be too far on the upper end of the market or too far on the low end of the market, but where do we think there's gonna be the most amount of buyers for that, uh, that type of property, um, from a price point perspective and like to like to play in that space. So what was that range again of what the, the sweet spot is for where most people buy? It depends on the market, right? So in, in like... Uh, oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, in like Charlotte, for example, that may be a half a million bucks, right? For a, you know, a starter home or a, a move up home in, in Boston, it may be 1.1 million, right? Um, in terms of you know, uh, what you get for your money in different places in the country. And I know you mentioned the minimum is 5K, which is very uh, approachable for any investor, uh, not any, but, but for accredited investors who are listening. Um, is the average something like 10 to 15 or something? Yeah, per, per investment, it's around, I think, 12. Um, and and uh, average deployment per investor is around 100 in, I think it's right around 100K. Oh, so the average investor is doing around eight investments? Yeah, eight, eight to eight to fifteen investments, I think, is is typically where it's at. So um, I think it's like anything else, right? If you, um, you know, and we have a we have a twelve step guide on kind of helping people think through developing their own investment strategy. But you know, I think it starts with like how much do you want to allocate to the space, right? And then um, you know, maximize to the extent you can diversification across that allocation, right? So that if you got a hundred grand on our platform, that means you could invest in twenty different deals. I'd rather see you take that hundred grand and put it into 20 deals than put it in one or two. Um, yeah, that was gonna be my next question, which was, do you have kind of an optimization of diversification? How many you need to get into? Is it five, 50, or is it based on which markets? And you know, how, how would you determine like, what's the right amount for getting diversified? Yeah, I think, uh, I think, I think 10 is probably a good place to start, um, you know, so, yeah, like, like anything else, right? I think the more diversification, the better. The trade-off there is obviously you've got more deals to keep an eye on and, um, you know, different things like that. But I, I think that's a, a, a worthy trade. We also have uh, two other products in market that kind of have some built-in diversification for the investor. So we have a product that's called the Residential Bridge Note Fund, um, where an investor can make, it's 
it's a dead investment. So it's got a fixed maturity date, a fixed coupon. Uh, an investor can make, let's say, a $25,000 or 5000 I think our minimum on that product is actually $1,000. So um, you can make a single investment. And then uh, we use the proceeds from uh, the raise of that debt instrument to redeploy into these individual deals through this the same security that you'd invest in if you're doing one-off deals. So uh, if someone was to invest in the residential bridge note fund today, I think they'd have exposure to north of 300 individual projects. Um, so one of the things we heard over uh, over the years from our investors is, I like the asset class, uh, I like the exposure, I like the return profile. I don't really enjoy going through and picking, you know, 20 different investments and managing all those and cycling my money back in when they repay. Can I just give you 100 grand and let you guys kind of, you know, do that for me? So the residential bri- bridge note fund was kind of a, a um, I guess, listening to our customers and trying to create a product that fit their needs. Uh, we've got another one called the pre-funding note fund, which operates very similar, but that capital is used to originate loans um, and, and fund construction draws before they get syndicated, uh, you know, completely on the platform. And we've got a third product in the works um, that I'm, I'm very excited about that we should have in market sometime late in Q1, early Q2, uh, which is structured more like a private REIT. So uh, more of a traditional kind of equity investment, um, your time horizon and lockup period in that fund is going to be a little bit longer. Um, but there's some other benefits that we can provide um, from a, a tax perspective, as well as from a leverage perspective uh, to help, you know, after tax uh, returns and, and uh, also help, you know, provide it's a different risk profile, but, uh, you know, give you give people an opportunity to potentially earn a slightly higher return as long as they're, you know, willing to trade some of that additional risk, um, you know, with leverage that we may put on the, on the fund as well. Got it. And is that the main difference between the other managed products and like the re- potential product? Yeah, it'll be the, the tax, it'll be the tax treatment. It'll be the leverage and it'll be the, the lockup period, right? So you're probably going to be, your money's going to be locked up for three to four years, whereas the, the other products typically have a, a nine or 12 month term on them. So there's, you know, some, some built in liquidity, if you will, to the debt instruments where this one's going to be a, a little bit of a longer commitment from a time perspective. Uh, 20 minutes back, you said, hey, if your money's long enough, I think you'll make money in single family real estate. And then here you're referencing time duration again. What is long enough uh, for being able to make money in real estate? Is it six months, one year, two years, 20 years, you know, a century? What is that, you know, long enough uh, over under threshold that people should be thinking about? Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I, I think I think I would think long enough to mean um, long enough to ride whatever uh, cyclicality may happen in the market, right? So, I think if you if you made an investment back in 2006 and could have held that through 2020, you'd have done very well, right? You you bought arguably at the top of the market. Uh, the the market fell out, but if you held it all the way through 2020, 2021. You probably still had a, a, a reasonable IRR right over that 15-year period, so that's a very long time horizon. Um, I think that's uh, that's not what we're talking about here. I think that was a very um, exceptional kind of uh, event that was driven by a lot of things that the regulators, I think, have have done a nice job solving for to make sure that we don't find ourselves in that type of a situation again. Um, you know, but but long enough to ride through, you know, what real estate is a cyclical business, right? And it's driven by interest rates and a lot of other things. So um, I think as long as you're willing to kind of go through a cycle, um, which typically is 12 to 24 months, um, you know, from an IRR, that is if you bought, if you get involved at the, the top of a market. Um, again, if you look at the long-term trends of real estate, they're always 
up and to the right over a, over a long enough time horizon. So um, that, that's what I would say is you don't you don't want to you don't want to be in this type of an asset class if you if you think you're going to need the money for some reason in the next 12 months um, because you, you may be into a situation where you're forced to sell in a in the down part of the market. Whereas if you could have held on for another 12 or 18 months, um, you probably probably would have come out OK. Are we maybe then talking like three to five years is let's call it long enough um, to see a cycle? Yeah. Great. And then, and if you're in that, if you're in that, you're also then benefiting by buying right in the, in the down part of the cycle, which is going to help you kind of on the back up. So long as you're right in a, in a, in the right type of investment product that is capitalized to, you know, play in whether the market's up or down. Right. So I, as the stock picker, how am I supposed to choose those 10 investments? You know, you told me I should diversify into 10, you know, put five or 12 into each. Um, obviously you have a managed product now cause you're, some of your customers tell you that they don't want to do the picking, but educate me on, on, on the podcast here. Wh- how am I supposed to decide what to pick? Yeah. So I like to start with like developing a thesis around like, where do you think housing is going to do well? Right. So for us, we, we look at uh, a couple of things, um, where are the jobs and the people going? Right. So, you know, where, where do we think there's going to be, um, uh, employed people that, you know, so long as they're employed, um, they're going to need a place to live and have the means to pay for a place to live. So, you know, this isn't a, se- a big secret or, or rocket science, right? The, the smile states, as they're called, the South, Southeast, uh, mid-Atlantic areas. Uh, you know, we like Boston a lot because it's got a very diverse economy around healthcare and education and uh, startups and um, venture-backed and private equity. Um, you know, so I think first is start with a perspective on either based on what you know or what perspective you have, where do you think the people and the jobs are going to, are going to be at? Um, and then from there, you can kind of zoom in a little bit more, you know, on the actual asset, right? So we like to look at, um, you know, a couple of different, a couple of different things, loan to value ratios is really, really what it comes down to. So, you know, what is the loan, um, how much money is out the door on day one relative to the value of that property at day one? Uh, and how much money is going to be out to the to the to the property right once the property is completed? Um, and do we think there's a reasonable amount of margin for error? Um, and do we do we think there's a reasonable believability in that valuation uh, based on what we think you know the market will bear for for that home? So I think you know next thing is look at that. And rule of thumb is you, know, you kind of want 80, 85, 90 percent LTV from a, a cost basis, kind of at day one, or or obviously lower is better. Um, and then we're typically in the 60 to 70 percent range on once the money's fully dispersed and the home is completely renovated. So you've got a you know 30, 35 percent margin for you know error, if you will. Um, Meaning that if it's a million dollar home, you gave them a $650,000 loan. So that's 65% of loan to value. And for some reason, there's a shock in the system and that value of that home goes down to 800,000 from a million. There's still a coverage if for some reason they're not paying their loan because you still have the asset that backs it, right? Yep. You got 150, in that example, you got $150,000 of equity cushion above kind of our attachment point from debt. Which is enough to recoup. Probably, guys stop paying interest. There's gonna be legal fees to, re, you know, recover the asset, to foreclose on it, to sell it, right? So, uh, starts to increase your probability of um, not only recovering your your initial principal balance, but also, hopefully, enough to generate a return on on that investment as well, right? Great, great. Um, and, and I think just just to finish that point, I think the other the other thing that's important to look at is uh, the, these are, you know, in some ways. 
I like to say they're small business loans, right? That happen to have uh, collateral behind them. So if you're thinking about making a, an investment or a, a loan to a small business, you'd want to do so in a good operator, right? Someone that knows how to operate their business. So looking at their prior experience, looking at their credit score, I think is a, is a decent indicator of like, does this person know how to run their business and pay their bills on time and manage their credit? Um, you know, so we, we provide a decent amount of information as well on that, that operator diligence is on the platform. Yep. Yeah. So we'll, we'll list out the project they've completed with us before. We'll, you know, try to provide links to other projects that they've, they've completed that maybe aren't with us. Um, we'll let you know what their credit score is. So I think it's, yeah, macro, what markets do I want to be in a little bit more micro? Does it, the asset make sense? Do the attachment points, you know, the different points in time over the project make sense? Do I believe this guy or gal can execute the strategies they've laid out to create value? Um, and if you can get comfortable with all of those three things, then you look at obviously what am I getting paid right for this risk? Am I getting a, a high enough um, you know rate of return relative to other places I could put my money? Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the things I like about this space is most people own a home, have owned a home, right? Understand how homes are valued, particularly in markets that they they live in or uh, travel to or what have you. So uh, it's a very intuitive asset class to kind of understand you know ultimately the value and the underlying value of the, uh, the property that, you know, is collateralizing ultimately your, your capital that you're deploying. Right. And, um, the biggest risk is the default, right? That they're not paying their loan. Is that right? Yeah. So, um, yes. And, uh, you know, when I, when I talk to investors, I like to say that this is, um, you know, the, the risk here is certainly loss of principal, like any investment, right? You can always lose all of your money and you should go into any investment with any, you know, some expectation that that's a probability that's greater than zero. Um, in, in, in this asset class, you know, the probability of your investment going all the way to zero is relatively low because we have that first position mortgage. There is a real tangible thing, right? Whether it's land or a, a home in some state of disrepair on the other side of that. Um, it does become a liquidity risk, right? Where if the guy stops making interest payments, you're not obviously generating any current return on that. Um, and depending on the state, it could be 12, 18, 24, 36 months, right? To you know, go through a, a notice of default process, a judicial foreclosure process, they get the property back and then list and sell it process. So um, I like to say there's a pretty high probability that we're gonna get all or most of your money back. Um, but if, again, if you need that money, Counting on that money for tomorrow or like at the date the, the loan matures, um, proceed with caution, right? Which is another another reason for diversifying, right? If you got that hundred grand across twenty, uh, you may have one or two that get stuck, right? Now you got five or ten k kind of stuck, but your other one ninety has been, you know, repaying in liquid, um, you know, on a on a somewhat you know uh, predictable basis, if you will. Is there some sort of like a predictive measure of how often you're having an issue with one of the loans? Is it 10 or 20% or uh, some sort of number like that? Yeah. So we, we post all of our default statistics on our, on our blog. So every month we post, you know, how many loans are, you know, 30 to 60 days late, how many loans are 60 to 90 days late, how many loans are 90 plus days late, um, how many loans are in foreclosure, uh, both on a percentage of dollar and, and unit count basis. Um, historically that's kind of run in the, you know, five to 10% range across, you know, all, all three of those different buckets. Um, we have seen an, an increase in what we call loan extensions. So the guy took out a nine month or a 12 month loan and now he needs another three months or he needs another six months to really kind of complete and finish that project. Um, some of that is, you know, we've all 
heard about the su- supply chain challenges and getting windows and refrigerators and stoves and copper and all those things that go into a house have, have certainly been challenging, uh, you know, over the past really since COVID. Um, and, and some of that is starting to correct itself. But what hasn't caught up completely is the permitting offices in a lot of these local jurisdictions. Um, you need electrical permits and plumbing permits and uh, building permits and certificates of occupancy. Um, and a lot of those uh, government offices were backlogged for um, a number of different reasons. Some of it, you know, COVID caused and some of it um, caused by just the amount of additional building that's happened over the past two years. So um, we're seeing, you know, more of our, our borrowers that are still making good progress and that we still have conviction in to get to a good outcome, just need more time as a function of either, you know, supply chain challenges or, you know, getting, you know, the appropriate permits in place from the local jurisdiction. So um, I think around of a third of our book right now is in, in some state of exten- uh, state of extension. Worth noting that we don't give people extensions that aren't current on their payment or aren't making good progress on the project or aren't, you know, otherwise behaving the way that we'd expect a good counterparty to behave. But um, so long as we, you know, continue to believe in the project and the, the person just stuck for a reasonable uh, reasonable reason, uh, you know, we're inclined to, to give them some additional time to, to work it out. I love the uh, transparency and the fact that you have all those stats on the site. That's super helpful for the investor as they're doing their research. So that's, that's awesome. Um, an obvious question here, how has the rising interest rates been impacting uh, your business? So I can see potentially going both ways. So I would love to hear what you're seeing and what's happening. Yeah. And I, you know, we, we've always said that we're somewhat um, interest rate agnostic as our business, right? Like if interest rates are, you know, really low, like they were over the past couple of years, we can, you know, we can play in that space and it, you know, just the result is our borrowers pay less for the money and our investors make a little bit less of a return. Uh, but, you know, we, we, we operate in a, a pretty efficient market at this point in terms of how things get priced. I think what's been challenging for the market at large over the past, you know, nine months is, is, is really has to do more with the rate of change. So we went from practically a, a zero cost of money environment to, uh, you know, four and a half, five percent, you know, risk-free rate um, in a really short amount of time. So that's uh, caused kind of, I think, challenges on both sides of our business in terms of, uh, you know, for our borrowers, you know, you think about um, they're buying houses, right? So they're buying house from someone typically that's selling out of foreclosure or a divorce or, you know, someone died and, right, and then you get rid of the house. Um, they're not sure what they can uh buy that house for because they're not sure what they're going to be able to sell that house for because they're not sure what their buyer is going to be able to pay because they have no certainty around what's the 30-year mortgage rate going to look like, right? So um, the rate of change has just created a lot of uncertainty, I think, for our borrowers in terms of, um, you know, ultimately what's the right pay, what's the right price to pay today into, you know, a, a very kind of uncertain nine to 12 months from now. So we've seen a lot of them slow down in terms of their buying activity, which obviously creates less opportunities for us to fund. Um, the other side of that is just from our risk posture perspective is we have the same questions, right? We don't know what they're going to be able to sell the house for, you know, uh, nine to 12 months from now. So we've started to take a more conservative approach on our, our underwriting, right? From a loan to value perspective and uh, a pricing perspective. And then our investors and, you know, we work with a handful of institutions as well. Uh, similarly, their cost of capital has gone up and they've got different opportunities. So they're demanding, right? Different uh, risk return profiles. So uh, I would say over the last eight to nine months, the market's just been um, trying to find its new level. And once it levels off, the market will form around it, right? And 
I think that's just what people are looking for uh, right now is some uh, some confidence in you know what the future is going to look like so that they can plan and, and make decisions appropriately. So we're starting to, we're starting to I think see kind of the uh, the end of that now as we're uh, like I said before starting to see the Fed and inflation um, posture a little bit differently in terms of rate of change going forward. So um, and that's showing up on the on the consumer side, right? Purchase applications for homes bottomed out over the last couple of weeks and are now starting to trend back up. So uh, people are starting to come back to market and want to buy homes and want to get mortgages, um, which will hopefully get the the flywheel spinning again on just uh, liquidity in the market is what, what's needed, right? We need active buyers and sellers um, telling us what they're willing to pay and uh, transact at, right? Great. So last question in this segment. So um, you mentioned some concerns about commercial or office or residential or sorry, or hospitality or retail, but single family residential, you're still very uh, bullish on any other points of view on the 2023 outlook. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, specific, specifically to housing. Yeah. Specifically to, you know, real estate and what you know about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it'll be a year where, um, you know, winners are made and, and, uh, people that maybe were doing things that, uh, were, were a little bit too brazen are, um, I think Warren Buffett has a saying, you don't know who's swimming with their trunks down until the tide goes out. So I think it's safe to say the tide, the tide's kind of gone out. So I think we're going to see a fair amount of, um, uh, consolidation kind of in, in the space that we work in, um, either in terms of, you know, businesses kind of hitching their wagons to, to larger platforms, um, or, you know, shutting down shop and, you know, those customers having to go elsewhere for, you know, the services that they were previously providing. So I think, um, I think 2023 across kind of the real estate spectrum will be where the, uh, the strong gets stronger if they can, you know, do some of the right things and position their, their businesses, um, you know, in the right, in the right ways. Um, and, uh, and maybe that's the optimist entrepreneur in me, right. Of, uh, of, you know, silver linings to, 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 to challenging times, but yeah, I think what the industry just went through over the past six to nine months was um, uh, was real and to some extent cleansing. Um, and I think we'll see how that plays out uh, across the sector at large in in 2023. Um, I think it'll be a down year from a, a transaction volume perspective, with um, particularly in the first half of the year, with a with a with a trend line starting to come back to what I consider to be something more normal um, by the end of the year. Um, with kind of the the disclaimer that 2020 to 2022 were not normal years, uh, both on the more to the upside, right? So I think maybe to summarize it, I think we kind of revert to the mean um, in terms of uh, uh, all things, particularly residential real estate in 2023. Yeah, you mentioned that before. It seems to be a, a consistent trend. Um, so the listeners want to be as smart and knowledgeable as you, which is going to be hard to do. And you already shared one of your nuggets, which is uh, the housing wire daily, but what is it that you're reading, listening to, watching that you know makes you as knowledgeable as you are in the space? Yeah, so the the housing wire was one. Um, like I said before, I'm 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 more of like a macro guy. I like like looking at kind of the big picture and then developing you know more specific theses around that. There's another newsletter uh, that I've been getting for a while called the Daily Shot, um, which comes out with um, you know it's the first thing I read in in my inbox in the morning, and it's um, a lot of different macro, you know, kind of, th- there's a lot around housing, there's a lot around manufacturing, there's a lot around interest rates, uh, you know, a lot around the venture world. So um, I like to start there to just kind of see where the trend's going at a macro level. Um, and then, you know, depending on what I'm interested in or what's applicable to our business, you know, double clicking 
through that to develop whether it's an investment strategy or a go-to-market strategy or, or whatever it is. So um, that's a really good one from a, a macro perspective that's very uh, objective and kind of data-driven, um, but it's a consistent set of data, right, on a daily basis that, you know, helps you kind of connect some dots sure. on where things may be going. Oh, that's a great one. Thank you for sharing those. And then the, uh, the last question we always ask everybody, which is, um, you know, three years out from today, what's an investment you would make today? And the more specific and tangible that you can make that investment, as opposed to just some theoretical idea, like invest into single family homes, um, you know, will be an investment you would recommend today that three years from now we can look back and say, yeah, that was, that was a great idea. Yeah. So I'll try not to kind of repeat myself. I'm obviously biased on real estate. And I think if you can find an angle into, um, you know, single family real estate, uh, and there's a lot of different vectors there that I think can, uh, can be attacked. And there's a lot of cool platforms that enable this in different ways, in addition to ours, um, that I think are, are worth exploring. Um, I hit on the manufacturing thing. I think, I think there's a huge opportunity in, uh, I'm calling it North America. Cause I think there's some, some really cool things in Canada and in Mexico as well. Um, as things get reshored, but um, there's these uh, there's these other types of investments called um, I believe they're called scout funds, where you can like put money into a uh, usually it's an individual operator that's just raising money to go buy a business, uh, and they focus a lot on like small manufacturing businesses. Um, you know, so there's enough of these guys that are looking for capital that you can interview and get to know and even you know help shape their strategy oh sure sure um that if it's something that you want to do a little bit more hands-on i think i think small manufacturing um you know, has some some interesting opportunities particularly with how fragmented and and private you know and and uh how much space there is because it's at a certain size uh, they're too small for the big guys to pay attention to so there's some you know you know interesting arbitrage opportunities there if I was going to ask you for single family real estate in North America to pin you down to one city, uh, which one would it be? Ooh. Yeah, just one. If you, and if you need to stretch it out till three, I'll take three. I really like the Carolinas. Uh, you know, pick, pick, a, pick a, 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 an MSA that's sizable in North or South Carolina, and I think you're, you're going to be okay. Um, nice. I love that. I didn't see that coming. That's great. Yeah, I, I should have plugged maybe Ohio, Columbus, and Indianapolis are two other markets that we're we're very bullish on. Um, Aren't you from Ohio? I am. I grew up in Northeast Ohio, but um, that's awesome. Columbus has a lot of momentum. Um, yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, you're uh, seeing a rejuvenation from your youth for all the uh, manufacturing coming back. Well, Matt, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. It, we've covered so many topics. Um, you started out with telling us you it all began in the early. 2010s with the Lending Academy, you know, newsletter. You love cash flowing assets as opposed to speculative assets. You surprised the listeners with over 65% of your worth going into real estate. You're super bullish on the residential uh, real estate, single family, but you're not so much so into the commercial office, uh, hospitality or retail. Um, you gave us a lot of great facts, like less than a million active listings. Uh, which was news to me. And then obviously you already gave us some nuggets as uh, some great things we should listen to, like the uh, the Housing Wire Daily. Um, your prediction there with, from listening is that we'll see mortgages in the mid fives and that we're going to be seeing compression between the 10-year treasury and the 30-year mortgage. You obviously told us about how you do your origination framework and what we should be looking out for as investors. There's also the ability to pick on your site or you have managed products, which is awesome. I really appreciate your transparency with us about all the data about uh, how how uh, all the loans are performing. And then obviously you finished up by telling us your predictions for the future and told us the Carolinas is where it's at. 
So thanks, Matt. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Smart Humans with Slava Rubin is a podcast brought to you by the team at Vincent. Any data, text, or other content in this podcast is provided as general market information and not as investment advice. Past performance is not necessarily an indicator of future results. For more information on alternative investing, check out Vincent at www.withvincent.com.